Pastor, I thank you for my brother, uh, Gord, this morning. I pray the Holy Spirit that you would anoint him, that you would shine down on him and give him a word for us today. Uh, thank you for him. Thank you for his love for others and his love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you. Amen. Well, thanks, Jim. Thanks for such a, a warm welcome this morning. I do remember um, that trip to Venezuela and some uh, great conversations that we had together just talking about what God was doing in our lives and his direction for the future. And as I uh, come to uh, Heise Hill this morning with my family, and I'm very grateful that uh, my wife, Susie, and my son, uh, Benji, could uh, accompany me on this trip. I know for uh, Susie, it's, uh, it's, it's a great relief to be here, actually, because she's normally very involved at our home church in Welland. And she said that this is just wonderful. I don't have anything to do today. I can just come and be a part of this. So that's a, that's a good thing. And as I uh, look out over the congregation, there are so many here uh, that have been a part of my, my life and my, my personal uh, journey uh, with the Lord, looking over here at uh, Lynn and Kevin and uh, standing uh, at the front of the Port Coburn Church a number of years ago officiating at their wedding and uh, seeing how their lives have advanced and uh, grown in the Lord and seeing their uh, daughters and uh, just a blessing and uh, to see my, um, I won't say my old high school teacher here because he's still quite a young man, but I was remarking to, uh, to Lloyd uh, Hogue earlier that um, I am very grateful for him because I think he, um, he went out of his way to give me a passing mark in math at NCC <laughs> a number of years ago so that I could graduate. And uh, I've always been grateful for Lloyd. I, I know he found a mark somewhere just to get me up to that passing mark. I'm not proud of that, but um, it happened. And uh, so many others who are here today, the Vermonts who worshiped with us at Welland for a number of years and our friendship and fellowship together, and Harvey and Gladys Steckley. Um, it was our privilege, Susie and I, to follow Harvey and Gladys at the Port Coburn BIC Church, and uh, I remember how well Harvey prepared the way for a young man that had not pastored before, and um, I will always be grateful to, uh, to Harvey and Gladys for, um, for their um, gift of, um, of love and uh, their ministry in those days as well. And I can mention many others who are here today, and those of you who I don't know. I notice you have a balcony here. I'm not used to speaking in a church where there's a balcony. And it seems that um, not all of you are young people, but there's a pretty good uh, collection there at the back. So um, we're glad to all be here together, whether you're up above or down below. I know there's a lot of subjects that we could uh, talk about this morning. They're subjects that we're very interested in. The economy, of course, is, uh, is a common topic that uh, we engage in these days. We could talk about sports. Uh, we could talk about the movies. Uh, there's a movie that uh, won a lot of uh, Academy Awards, A Slumdog Millionaire. Some of you have probably seen it. I haven't seen it yet. I'd like to see it. understand it's a great movie. Lots of great uh, lessons and stories in that movie. And probably particularly interesting to Harvey and Gladys, who have uh, served in India where that uh, movie was, uh, was made. Well, we're not going to talk about those things this morning. We are talking about missions. We're talking about the uh, global engagement that God calls us to impacting the world for Christ. 
and we want to uh, think further about becoming a, a global impact team. I know that you've been getting used to that language, a global impact team. And I know that as, uh, as a congregation, uh, your heart is very much uh, not only here in the Heise Hill area where you have ministered for so many years, but you have a heart for the world, and that, uh, that encourages me, me greatly. And uh, you want to be an impact team for the global cause of Christ. And that's why we have come together this morning. I want to refer to what several people have already referred to in the service today. This wonderful uh, text that we can refer to as the marching orders of Jesus or the Great Commission that we find in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. And I'd like to read it just to, uh, to set the, uh, the foundation for what we're going to consider today. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is a very important text of the Word of God. We find uh, four main things here that uh, really are the reason, I think, that we have a, a missions conference like this, and the reasons why we are thinking and reaching out to the world around us. Jesus, first of all, says that all authority has been given to him. All the authority of heaven and earth has been given to him. But I believe very much that he is giving that authority to his disciples, including us here in 2009, to continue this cause of taking the gospel to the nations. So he has given us all authority, all the authority of his kingdom, the authority to go in his name, the authority to go with his truth, the authority to go in his love and to go in his power and to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. He has also told us to go to all the nations. And in the original language of the New Testament, that really means to all the various people groups of the world. We're going to talk a little bit about that in another slide about uh, those unreached people groups of the world that we are seeking to bring the message of Jesus Christ to. So he has told us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he has told us to teach them all things whatsoever he has commanded us, to teach them all of his truth, what an awesome task we have as a church, to carry this message, to carry this treasure of his truth to the whole world. And then he gives us the promise at the end, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the ages. Always. That he accompanies us, he goes with us, he walks beside us. In the good times and the hard times, as we seek to make disciples as we seek to bring that message to all of the nations of the world, he promises that he will be with us and he will give us his Holy Spirit to empower us with this life-transforming message of the gospel. 
I'm thankful that Brethren in Christ World Missions, that we are a part of as, as a denomination, has a great vision. The vision is stated in these four simple points. And this is really the New Testament message and vision for taking the gospel to the world. A church for every people, the gospel to every person, a mission from every church, and Jesus worshipped in the nations. That's really the, the, the way that it's going to end, that Jesus will be worshipped in the nations as his, na his name is proclaimed. It's his promise that all the people groups of the world, all the, the tongues and tribes and cultures and societies of the world will one day come together, those who have accepted him and believed in his name, to worship him in all of the nations of the world. What a great hope we have and what a great promise. But as we look at that world, and some have described it this way, breaking it into three different parts, six billion people in the world, approximately one-third who claim to follow Jesus, one-third who really do reject him, who follow other leaders, other religions, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, and we could name many more, and one-third, or approximately two billion, who have never heard of him, somewhere between eight and 10,000 people groups with their own culture, their own language, their own history, often living in the same geographical area, who have not heard his name yet. What a challenge we have to take the gospel, this message of Jesus, to the nations of the world. The command of Matthew 28 has engaged millions of Christians to globally impact the world. And I know that there are many in this congregation this morning who have served in other countries of the world. And you have heard that call and you have obeyed and you have carried that message in your hearts and in your life and in your words around the world. I praise the Lord for that. Brethren, Christ World Missions has a number of strategic priorities as well. I'm going to go through them very quickly. To bring Christ to those who have not yet heard to train and develop leaders to reach and equip others, to minister to the whole person in the name of Christ, such as the Spuriers are doing in Africa at Macha Mission. John and Esther Spurrier have given so many years of their lives, a medical doctor and his wife, to serve there, to partner with others to finish the task, to mobilize congregations to pray, to give and to send. I'm excited that I'm a part of a church that has this kind of vision and uh, these kinds of strategic priorities. There are approximately 80,000 BIC members in our international family. As Cheryl has told us earlier, there are three international BIC congregations for every one congregation in North America. The family's a lot larger <laughs> beyond our borders. There are approximately 900 congregations in this international family and about 82 missionaries serving in 21 countries around the world. I'm going to very quickly just, uh, just show you on this slide those countries and when the work began in those countries. Zimbabwe, Zambia, India, Bihar and Orissa, the Navajo people that we've learned a little bit more about today, the special day of, of world prayer. 
Japan and Cuba. The work beginning there in 1954, Nicaragua, the United Kingdom, Quebec, Venezuela, Malawi, Colombia, Thailand, Spain, Mozambique, South Africa, Honduras, Nepal, Botswana, Mexico, and a lot of people didn't know that we have now a missionary family living in this very restricted access country of Jordan. You will learn more about that in, in the coming days. We've also had missionaries from other countries, such as India and Nepal, go to Bhutan. What about those countries? We have a Brethren in Christ family from the United States living in Israel who are now talking about beginning a Brethren in Christ work there. We've had visits from Brethren in Christ missionaries to Morocco. The Florida churches, the Hispanic churches, have started works in places like the Dominican Republic, where you, some of you go on holidays, and, and Costa Rica. The word is getting out. The gospel is being taken to the whole world. But today we want to particularly think about Cuba in uh, the time that, that remains. And uh, I want to say up front that a few of the pictures that you will see in uh, the remaining part of the message and some of the, the, the statistics uh, Cheryl shared with you earlier for those who came to the, uh, the Sunday School presentation on Cuba as well. A great uh, learning experience there. Our first missionaries entered Cuba in uh, 1954. And you saw a map downstairs, those of you who were there, and you could see it there. We today have uh, churches with the Brethren in Christ all across from point to point, from the west to the eastern end of, of Cuba, even in the area where Fidel Castro was born, in uh, Guantanamo, and even in Baracoa, there at the far extreme of Cuba, we have uh, a house church that has been planted there, uh, where we have been working more particularly in uh, in the last couple of years with the first work team that went and the second one that will go in May and the third one, Lord willing, that will go out from Heise Hill will be to um, more the center of the island, the place that's called Cienfuegos on your, your map. It's a province and it's a city and right near there is this uh, town of Palmira. That is a name that uh, the Brethren of Christ are becoming quite uh, accustomed to these days. So we're thankful for the great work that is being done in, in Cuba. The first congregation was established in Cuatro Caminos, in uh, a place just near the city of Havana, about 30 minutes from the capital city of Havana, that very historic city, Cuatro Caminos. You can see a picture of the church buildings there back in 1954. Fidel Castro led his revolutionary army in the triumph of the, of the revolution in 1959. That was a very climatic year in the history of Cuba as many, many things changed both for the church and for, for the country. The government of Cuban president, uh, dictator Batista was defeated and overthrown in January of 1959 with this much younger man at that time uh, coming to power and uh, introducing communism to the island of, of Cuba, one of the longest uh, reigning leaders in the world up until last year, almost 50 years as the president and commander-in-chief of, uh, of Cuba, but retired uh, due to serious illness. 
when Fidel Castro came to power, all the foreign missionaries were forced to leave the island in the days following the revolution. Some families that uh, some of you would be familiar with, the Ulris and the Walgamuths and some others who were there in those days uh, needed to leave after just being there for the previous uh, five years. A young Cuban woman, Juana Garcia, you'll see a picture of Juana in, in this, uh, this slide with the uh, present president of the church, uh, Francisco or Frank Martinez, along with myself uh, in our last visit there in uh, November. Uh, Juana Garcia, some of the Cuban folks now call her Juana La Cubana. And um, she may look a little frail in that picture, but we found her in our last visit actually uh, very feisty and um, with good humor and still with a, a good vision for what the Lord could do in, uh, in the church. She still lives in Cuatro Caminos. During the uh, difficult years when Juana was left in charge of this uh, young and struggling church of just two congregations, about 40 to 50 people, um, there were several Canadian BIC leaders who visited and made contact with, with Cuba BICs, Ross and Roxina Nye, from the Falls View congregation, and uh, Roy and Dorothy Sider, uh, who later became, after being pastor at Churchton BIC, uh, overseas uh, secretary, Brother Christboro Missions. And during those, uh, those years when there wasn't much contact at all, the Brethren of Christ maintained contact with, uh, with this small, struggling church in, uh, in, in Cuba. During those days, churches were not allowed to evangelize, to build new churches, or to repair their church buildings. I found that out uh, sort of at the end of this time when we were at a service at Cuatro Caminos and there was a rainstorm and uh, rain was coming down through the uh, tin roof in a number of, uh, of places. Cuba was a communistic, uh, atheistic police state until about 1992. Also very much hampered by a long-standing U.S. trade embargo. But things changed. Things changed. In about 1992, after a visit from Pope uh, John Paul, things began to open up for the church in Cuba, not only the Roman Catholic Church, but the Protestant Church as well. The 1992 Constitution of Cuba declared Cuba's secular and, and discrimination against Christians illegal at that time. In 1992, the Cuban BIC Church elected a new, younger, energetic man, Daniel Cabrera, as their leader and as their president of the church, along with his wife, Sarah. This time marked uh, the beginning of an explosion of the house church movement in Cuba, not only <clears throat> for the Brethren in Christ, but for many other churches in Cuba. If you would go to, uh, uh, to your computer, go on the internet and, and check out growth in Cuba of the church, you would find that the Baptists and the Methodists and the Pentecostals, along with the Brethren of Christ, have experienced tremendous, tremendous growth. Something like 300% growth from what it was at the beginning of 1992 until the present. And some have reported as many as 17,000 churches across the island of Cuba today as a result of this explosion and this freedom to evangelize and to reach Cuba for Christ. 
Today, the Brethren of Christ Church in Cuba has approximately 80 congregations. I know that Cheryl said 100 plus, and it could very well be 100 plus, because it's hard to measure that because of the growth and the planting of new churches on, on a regular basis in all of the provinces of Cuba except one, with a total cumulative attendance of about 4,000. And that, uh, that's always changing as well. The church in Cuba has a vision of establishing strategic congregations in every provincial capital across the island of, of 11 million people. Isn't that a wonderful vision to have? To have that kind of light and salt planted in every capital city of, of the country. And I believe that they're going to, uh, to reach that. Some have wondered, and this is not in the notes, and we'll kind of stop the slides right here just for a moment, to say that the, that the Cuba that some of us have visited, um, actually I've never visited Cuba as a tourist. I've been there nine times. I've always gone as a representative of Brethren Christ World Missions or uh, Brethren Christ World Missions Canada, and it's been a privilege for me to do that. But the, the Cuba that tourists sees, see is a very different Cuba when you get on the inside and get to know the people and you go to their homes and you go to the, the towns and the villages of, of the country where most people do not have a car. The vast majority of Cubans do not have a car. They do not have a phone and they travel in a great variety of ways, either walking or by bicycle, or by motorcycle or just in the back of an open cattle truck across the island uh, old buses belching out all kinds of pollution. That's the way they, they travel in Cuba, except for the tourists who travel in the nice tourism buses across the island. What is Cuba like today? There is still strict uh, government control over many things, but there is religious freedom, and that's such a great blessing. The cost of living is high, and it's a com complex economic system. Many things cost as much or more there in one of the currencies that Cuba uses, and but yet the Cuban people are paid in the older currency and earn between $12 and $20 a month would be their average, average income. And that's really why so many of us are getting more and more involved in Cuba, because we know that they, they have such great human resources, but their ability to go forward with um, many parts of church life even bringing their pastors to a conference is a difficult thing, which they're doing this weekend in Cuba because transportation is so expensive for them with their wages, and usually about half of the pastors and lay leaders can come to their conference from the far extremes of the island because of the, of the cost of doing that. Many Cubans receive financial assistance from outside of the country from families and friends like to talk just briefly about how the church has grown, and this is going to be very, very quick. How the church has grown. It has had such a, a passion to make disciples. Cubans just so regularly invite their neighbors and their friends to their house church, or if they have a building, they'll, they'll invite them there. But they're always inviting people to come along with them. They, um, they witness because of the power of, of of their own testimony and their transformed lives. And at the end of uh, the service today, uh, in the end of the message, I'd like to tell you about one couple that we heard about a little bit earlier in the Sunday school hour. But a passion to make disciples is one, one cause of, of this growing church. 
perseverance in times of suffering. When you sit down and talk to the Cuban people, you'll hear them talk about the periodo especial, the time, the, the, the special period of time when the Soviet Union bloc countries fell, their trading partners were no longer there, and scarcity was at a, at a great, um, it was a great problem in the country, and they really learned what it meant to be a community with one another, to help one another out. If I didn't have sugar, I would go to my neighbors and, and maybe they would have some sugar, some flour, some bread. They are, they are very sharing people in, in that way. They have learned to persevere in times of suffering, as has the church. They have a vision for church planning, as we've already mentioned. Frank and Iris, the uh, present leaders of our church there, they traveled on the weekends for a number of years, every weekend, often in the back of a, of a cattle truck with their small children to go back to Frank's hometown to witness and to plant a church there. They would go on the weekends, and with a lot of opposition, they would go door to door. They would start little groups in, in some of those homes, and that was the way that the work began with, uh, with our president, who today has left the church behind because he's now the leader of the whole church in the hands of, uh, of, a, of a strong congregation and a strong leader, and they planted 10 other daughter churches as well. A vision for church planning. The gift of music and worship. Now, I can't play this this morning here, what was played in the earlier Sunday school hour, a video clip of one of the services at Palmyra. Um, you would find it hard to sit like you are now. You're looking pretty serious to me, and you're all in rows, of course, like we normally are when we come to church. But they have to move around a lot. It's not just because some people say, well, they're very Pentecostal or they're very charismatic. It's just the, the joy of the Lord is so much in their, in their hearts that uh, they have to move when, when, they, when they worship the Lord. And I want to say I really enjoyed the worship this morning. You don't need to be ashamed of anything, Tom. Thanks so much for leading us in a great time of, of worship. It was a great blessing to me. But the gift of music and worship has been such a great cause of attracting because the Cuban people love music. And many people have been attracted to the gospel when they hear music coming from one of these little house churches or large house churches. They want to know what's going on. And I've been in several of those house churches and, and speaking and looking at people coming and, and standing at a window and then more people coming behind and more people coming behind just to hear what's going on inside the little building or the little house. It's, it's such a blessing. How the church has grown? Frank, the leader, said to us as we were there on our last visit in November with the, um, the work team from the uh, the Canadian Conference Brother in Christ Rural Missions, that uh, we are so grateful that you have not forgotten us. That meant a lot to us to hear that, that you have not forgotten us over the years when there weren't many people coming to Cuba, when times were hard. You kept sending people to, to make sure that we were okay. And you've come now with, uh, with the very first work team to share with them. Devotion and sacrifice. Cheryl told us about, um, again, Frank and Iris, our leaders of the church, how they, they donated their property, one of actually a, quite a nice home for Cuban standards. 
that became the house church, they donated that property and put it into the name of the church so that it will remain that way in the years to come. They left it behind. They gave it up so that the work could go forward. What a blessing. Offering homes as communities of faith and worship. That's how the church has grown by, uh, by large. It, it has spread so much as people have opened up their homes. You have to get a permission from the government to operate as a house church in, in Cuba. They've overcome much division. They have problems just like we have here, conflicts amongst leaders. But uh, they have overcome and are going forward. And thank God for the evangelistic freedom that has been there. What does the Brethren of Christ Church in Cuba need? Well, they certainly need leadership training. And you can see this slide here of uh, the work team that went in November. And um, this was a great blessing to them. And I'm going to talk a little bit more uh, about work teams um, in just a couple of minutes. But leadership training is, uh, is a big uh, need for the church there. And, and as we're here today gathered together, um, there's a, a pastor from Venezuela that we had the privilege of discipling in the Lord, uh, Jose Otamendi, who is there with a missionary with Brethren Christ World Missions, uh, Marshall Poe, and they're doing a core course for the pastors and, and the leaders of the church and helping them to understand in a much clearer way uh, our, our message, our teaching, what we stand on as our truth as, as a church, the core values of the church and the essential doctrines of the church, that uh, they're working very much on that in these days. But those men can only be there because people are giving so that they can be there. The Cuba, Cuban church could not bring them, but we could send them because we are helping them financially to be there. And we're helping pastors to come to that conference with our support from Brethren in Christ churches as well. How can we help or what does Brethren in Christ Church in Cuba need? It needs financial support without creating dependency. We need to respond to the church in Cuba during these very difficult economic times. Brethren in Christ World Missions Canada carries the budget for Cuba, some $6,000 this, uh, this year. Another group that I am part of, the Canadian Cuban Projects team, is helping to do capital projects in Cuba as well. And then local churches, like Heise Hill, that has a vision to be involved in Cuba for the next, I think, five years. You've set a goal and that's such, uh, such an encouragement to, to know that you have, you have prayed, you've sought the Lord's um, will in this matter, and uh, you're coming alongside of the church as well. We do that through work and ministry teams. And um, I think we were more blessed when we went to Cuba in November as a team of 17 than we blessed them. We were so much blessed by, by their, their devotion, by their worship, and by their perseverance in such difficult times in so many other ways. But it is a blessing for them that we send our youth, we send adults, we send people who want to get a shovel in their hand or they want to mix some mortar or they want to get a hammer and help to build some of the training centers that they are strategically locating in three different places across the island. Congregational partnerships. So many have wondered, could we partner with 
a church in Cuba. Other countries of the world have asked the same question as well. And we're, we're working through that, how a congregation in Canada, the United States, could particularly partner with a congregation and, and be a support to one another. And maybe even have an exchange of, of pastors for a little period of time as well. We have to sharpen up on our Spanish and they on their English, of course. Sound Bible doctrine. It's, uh, it's strategic that um, we would help the Cuban church in these days with uh, the spiritual formation and theological formation of, of their leaders as many other influences are in the country at the present time that can really lead pastors away in a, in a theological um, understanding of, of, of the word of God. And so that's why we're doing core courses and that's why we're bringing pastors from other parts of the world. Spain, the Brethren of Christ Church in Spain, sent a former converted Jesuit priest who is now a pastor of a Brethren of Christ Church in Spain, a very educated man, to do one of the first core courses in, in Cuba. What a beautiful thing. Last year, three of our missionaries, Trevor Main and Mike Holland and Marshall Poe, did a course. So we're working hard at um, pr providing a, a, a biblical foundation for our, our brothers and sisters in, in, um, in Cuba, knowing that um, that's what the word of God exhorts us to do, be instant in season and out of season. Preach the word and sound doctrine. Faithful leadership, pray. And that's the last point about effective prayer. Pray for effective leadership. Many of the brightest leaders of Cuba have left the island. They've gone to Florida. They've gone to other places. They've gotten out of the country in these hard times. Pray that Frank and Iris Martinez, the present leaders, will continue to, to understand and respond to the will of God for their lives to lead the church in Cuba. We so much need dynamic, spirit-filled leaders such as these people to lead the church and many others. Well, as we conclude this morning, and I'm not sure if um, Heise Hill throws rotten eggs or tomatoes at pastors who go overtime, but I'm not going to... Um, get into that kind of trouble. So we'll just conclude at this time. What is our response? Well, as you see these pictures here, you'll see how some other people have responded. Again, in uh, the first slide, you'll see the Cubans worshiping together. And you'll see some of the, worship, uh, the, the work team members that went in November worshiping in a very small house church in Ojo de Agua. We had to go in an old car that you'll see a picture of. In fact, this old Chevy, back 51, 52 Chevy, was caught up on the, uh, the rocks. And we had to move some of the rocks so he could take us to our destination to be at this little house church. Well, that was our response. We wanted to go, and uh, we wanted to serve with them. And then as we see um, the work team working together here in this uh, next slide, that's one of the things that you can expect doing, those of you who sign up to go in uh, November with uh, the Heise Hill Brethren in Christ Church. The, 
The project will be much further advanced, we hope and pray, by that time. And uh, men and women will be welcome because there will be more to do than that. There will be opportunities to, to give a testimony, to share in music. Why don't you take your whole worship team with you to Cuba? That would be a great blessing to them. You can go to their cell groups, their small groups, these prayer walks that uh, we learned about this morning. It will be a great experience for you. But this last slide represents, I think, the greatest motivation that I personally have for returning to Cuba time and time again. This is Derlis and his wife, Tanya. Some of you saw that picture downstairs as well. Derlis spent a number of years in prison because of a fight that he was involved in as a younger man and the uh, other man was killed. Derlis' wife, Tanya, also spent time in prison. That's where they met. It was after they were released from prison, and that was a miracle, that they got together and eventually got married. And today, um, they are a pastoral couple and giving leadership to the house churches in the Palmyra area. Uh, we were all uh, moved very greatly the last morning in November 2008 when we were there, when they gave us their testimonies and told us how God had worked in their lives. That's the reason why I think we want to be involved in Cuba, because there's a, there are many more Derlises and Tanyas to be reached for Christ and to be discipled in the faith. And we want to partner with them, by God's grace, to build a strong and enduring church. Thank you so much for um, the opportunity to share with you this morning. And may we continue to be a, a global impact team for the cause of Christ.